Let me go ahead and welcome you here to the Cato Institute. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, and it's my pleasure uh, to introduce our book forum today for Michael J. Glennon's book, National Security and Double Government. Um, when the book came to my attention from our colleague David Bowes, it immediately jumped out at me. Uh, has a very good jacket cover uh, and a very good number of blurbs, but as I went deeper and deeper into the book, it occurred to me the extent to which it was really something that would appeal to Cato-ish people. Um, and when I reached out to Michael and suggested that this is sort of a Cato-ish book, he conceded, I can see how you would say that. Um, any book that holds out something called a Trumanite network as the villain is bound to appeal to a Cato-minded person. Uh, and anyone that holds out the twitching corpse of America's Madisonian institutions uh, as the hero is, has, has compounded his appeal to a Cato-ish person. The book is very nicely written and directly argued. And for proof of this, I'll just read the first provocative sentence of the book. Few who follow world events can doubt that the Obama administration's approach to multiple national security issues has been essentially the same as that of the Bush administration. And in some sense, this is the puzzle that animates uh, Michael Glennon's book, the striking continuity in national security policy, not just from President George W. Bush to Barack Obama, but indeed for a time longer than that. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and introduce the author and our two discussants today, um, and then turn it over to Michael to discuss the book from the podium, and then the other two discussants to, do, to offer their remarks. Michael J. Glennon is professor of international law at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Prior to going into teaching, he was legal counsel to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where he rubbed elbows with a goodly number of Trumanites and a few Madisonians to boot. Uh, he was there from 1977 to 1980. He served as a consultant to various congressional committees, the State Department, and the IAEA. He's a member of the American Law Institute, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Board of Editors of the American Journal of International Law. He's the author of a great number of articles on constitutional and international law, as well as several books, including the one we're here to discuss today. He's testified before the International Court of Justice and a variety of congressional committees, and is a frequent commentator on television and radio whose work written work, I should say, has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, IHT, FT, and a number of others. He has a bachelor's degree from the College of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and a JD from the University of Minnesota. Uh, the first discussant today is my colleague, Gene Healy, who's vice president at the Cato Institute. His research interests include executive power and the role of the presidency, which impinges on the topic we're discussing here today as well as federalism and over-criminalization. He's the author, again, somewhat pertinent for today, of The Cult of the Presidency, America's Dangerous Devotion to Executive Power, and the follow-on e-book, False Idol, Barack Obama and the Continuing Cult of the Presidency. He's done an array of TV and radio appearances, and his work's been published LA Times, New York Times, Chicago Trib, Legal Times, and elsewhere. He has a bachelor's degree from Georgetown and a JD from UChicago Law School. 
And our second discussant today is Jeremy Shapiro, who's a fellow at the Brookings Institution. Prior to rejoining Brookings, he was a member of the State Department's policy planning staff, where he advised the Secretary of State on U.S. policy in North Africa and the Levant. He was also senior advisor at State Department to the Assistant Secretary for European and Eurasian Affairs, Philip Gordon. Prior to joining State, he was back at Brookings, uh, the research director at the Center for the United States and Europe, and a fellow in foreign policy studies. He was also a non-resident uh, senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and an adjunct professor at Georgetown. He's worked at a, as a policy analyst at RAND and served on General McChrystal's initial assessment team that recommended a new strategy for NATO efforts in Afghanistan. He's published in a similarly impressive array of outlets, the New York Times, Financial Times, Washington Post, and has published several books and monographs uh, on US national security policy. Graduated from Harvard with a BA in computer science and received his MA from SICE up the street and is a PhD candidate in political science at MIT. So with that, Michael, if you want to come up and give the talk from the podium, thank you for coming. Well, Justin, uh, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to be here today to talk about my book. Shortly after the book was published, a friend of mine told me that uh, I shouldn't expect to get many phone calls from the 202 area code anymore. So I was especially delighted to receive Justin's uh, invitation. The uh, book, as Justin suggested, attempts to answer a troubling question. Why has American national security policy changed so little from Bush administration to the Obama administration? Why has a president who campaigned forcefully and eloquently against virtually every aspect of these policies continued these policies virtually unchanged? First three pages of the book list several dozen of them, from drone strikes to NSA surveillance to whistleblower prosecutions to the invocation of the state secrets privilege to the decision not to prosecute those involved in the waterboarding activities. So the question is, why? Why would so few of these policies and programs not have been changed by the Obama administration. <clears throat> a good part of the explanation, not the full explanation, not the entire explanation, but a good part of the explanation, I suggest in the book, lies in the theory of double government, which was proposed in 1867 by one of the founders of The Economist magazine, Walter Badgett, to explain the operation of the British government. Badgett's theory, in a nutshell, was essentially this. British government had effectively split into two sets of institutions, dignified institutions and the so-called efficient institutions, in his words. The dignified institutions consisted of the monarchy 
in the House of Lords, and they performed the function of generating legitimacy, generating public deference. The public, Badgett suggested, believed that the monarch and House of Lords actually ran the British government, but that belief was mistaken. The government was actually run, Badgett hypothesized, by the so-called efficient institutions, the prime minister, the cabinet, and the House of Commons. They operated behind the scenes. The public had little knowledge of who most of them were, what most of them did, how most of them operated. But this was the way in which the British government maximized both efficiency and legitimacy. And it was through this bifurcated structure, Badgett suggested, that Britain was able to move quietly and without much public notice from a monarchy to what he termed a concealed republic. The thesis of my book is that the United States has also drifted into, without any intentionality, drifted into a structure of double government. The United States has also developed two sets of institutions. The first, the Congress, presidency, and the courts corresponds to his dignified institutions. I call them the Madisonian institutions. And the second, the so-called efficient institutions in Badgett's vocabulary, I refer to as the Trumanite network, the several hundred individuals who sit atop and manage the law enforcement, intelligence, and uh, military departments and agencies of the government who actually formulate and carry out the national security policy of the United States. Now, there's an extremely important caveat to Badgett's theory about which he is explicit. What makes double government work is exceptions. There have to be exceptions that the public can point to in which the so-called dignified or Madisonian institutions actually engage in governance, or the whole structure will collapse. And uh, the, the thesis of my book, therefore, is that while, for the most part, American national security policy is run by the uh, Trumanite network, you can point to regular exceptions that cause the public to believe and to continue to defer to the Madisonian institutions, which is essential for the legitimacy of the entire dual structure. The difference, however, is this. In the case of the United States, the movement has been in the opposite direction. The movement has been away from constitutional accountability and towards emergent autocracy. So that's, in a nutshell, Badgett's theory. It's tough in the 20 minutes or so that I have remaining to summarize um, 
800 or so footnotes um, suggesting documentary support for this thesis. So let me take a very quick glance and a superficial glance at the <clears throat> Trumanite network and the presidency, and then move on briefly to uh, look quickly at the courts and the Congress, and then uh, conclude. What I'm about to tell you about the presidency and the Trumanite network would strike many Americans as counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive because they have an outdated image of the presidency. They continue to think of the presidency as a top-down institution, as sitting at the pinnacle of a triangle of box charts, uh, as, as a Jeffersonian institution, the sort of presidency that existed in 1802 when Thomas Jefferson moved into the White House. The entire executive branch consisted of 132 people. The White House staff consisted of one person, Jefferson's personal secretary. So Americans think today, for the most part, that, and, and this is true of, 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 I think, many sophisticated observers as well, that when the president issues an order, the millions of people in the executive branch simply click their heels and salute because they are all accountable to this person at the top of the triangle. Even some presidents and presidential candidates believe that. Harry Truman famously said, right after Dwight Eisenhower was elected, Ike will be so surprised. He will say, do this, do that, and nothing will happen. He'll be so disappointed. George Bush, the decider himself, was asked shortly before he left office by one of his staff aides, what's the one thing about the presidency that surprised you more than anything else? And he responded very quickly, how little power I have. How could that be? How could that be? How could the presidency have changed from a top-down institution to what is, in reality, a bottom-up or middle-up institution? It consists, the executive branch today, um, of millions of employees, but only roughly three or 4,000 of those appointees are, of those employees are political appointees. And of that total, only approximately 600 or so uh, operate within the national security field. Uh, and in, in many cases, the individuals, as I indicate in the book, are the same individuals who actually held those jobs in a previous administration. The policies and programs typically percolate up from somewhere within the bureaucracy and land on the president's desk. And there are many, many examples of this. Um, the uh, NSA bulk collection program wasn't an idea that came down from the Bush White House. It percolated up from the NSA. The NSA was pushing for this even, in fact, before 9-11. Uh, 
um, the, the mining of the Nicaraguan harbors was not something that was devised by Ollie North or Ronald Reagan and the White House staff. It percolated up from the CIA. It was thought up by an official in the Directorate of Operations named Dewey Claridge while he was home alone drinking by himself one night. Um, We've all been there. Yes. Um, President Obama didn't decide that his administration was going to continue to assert the state secrets privilege in litigation. The first time the privilege was asserted by the Justice Department, he read about it for the first time in the New York Times. So there are, of course, exceptions to what I'm uh, talking about. Just as Badgett's theory would predict, there have to be. You can, you can find instances in which the president was the decider, as, for example, he clearly was in the decision to take out Osama bin Laden. Those exceptions are necessary to make double government work and generate the needed legitimacy. But the general rule is that, by and large, the president is more presider than decider. So let me take a closer look at when the Trumanite network emerged, who the members of the Trumanite network are, and how they operate. When did the big inversion begin? First, probably um, during the administration of Harry Truman. The National Security Act of 1947 set up the CIA um, set up the National Security Council, consolidated the management of the military. It was in 1952 that President Truman, in a secret executive order, uh, established the National Security Agency. And these initiatives, it may surprise many Americans to learn, were A, very controversial at the time, and two, uh, were opposed by and, and, and uh, uh, heavily criticized by conservative Republicans in the Congress. It was liberal Democrats, such as Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota, Paul Douglas of Illinois, who provided the principal support for Truman's initiative. The conservative Republicans suggested that Truman was placing the United States on the road to a what they called a garrison state, that in the FBI and CIA he was setting up a Gestapo, that in consolidating the command of the military he was replicating the German general staff in the Wehrmacht that we had just defeated, and that it would lead to uh, nameless bureaucrats in the Pentagon padding their budgets and expanding their manpower. Fast forward 60 years. This little apparatus that Truman set up now consists of 46 different federal departments and agencies that operate with over 2,000 private companies in 10,000 locations around the United States. The exact size of its manpower is not clear. There are over 5 million Americans who have security clearances over 3 million Americans who have top-secret security clearances. The budget also, of course, is classified, but it's estimated to be about $1 trillion annually. 
And this is the apparatus that dominates the formulation and execution of American national security policy. And the Congress, the courts, and the presidency itself all defer to it. Who are these individuals? Um, I wouldn't describe them as villains, with all, all respect um, to Justin. Um, they are known, no doubt, to many people here today. Uh, I think that for the most part, they are smart, hardworking, dedicated, public-spirited, patriotic individuals who surely are not vested with the power that they are because of any conspiracy or nefarious intent. No, they operate and do what they do for reasons familiar to organizational theorists. They respond to incentives that are embedded within the American legal and political system. One of those incentives is to inflate risks. They have an incentive to exaggerate threats that the United States is facing for a very obvious reason. If they underestimate the risk, they get blamed. If they overestimate the risk, the penalty that they pay is more manpower and a larger budget. It's not hard to exaggerate a risk because they work in extreme secrecy. They are, in uh, the words of Jack Balkan, uh, Balkan, information gluttons and information misers. Their information gluttons is in that they grab as much power, as much uh, uh, information as possible about their uh, power competitors and adversaries abroad, and misers in that they don't share it. And the consequence is there is no independent means to assess their evaluations because the evaluations inevitably are based upon classified information. They incline to de define security problems in military terms, again, for an entirely understandable reason. The United States military is highly proficient and widely respected relative to other institutions within the American government law enforcement, diplomatic, economic institutions that might be called upon to address the same problem. So when you're sitting at the table, the logical first step for many Trumanites is to look to the person in uniform because they share the premise that underpinned Madeleine Albright's famous question to Colin Powell at the outset of hostilities in Kosovo. Why do we have this splendid military if we're not going to use it? They tend to resist accountability by the Madisonian, on the part of the Madisonian institutions for equally understandable reasons. The Madisonian judges, members of Congress, etc., are less expert than they are. Why should they allow kibitzing by amateurs when the true professionals spend their lives and have developed an expertise over many years to address these problems. And this mindset continues from one administration to the next, even sympathetic administrations. They tend to support the status quo, again, for reasons that are uh, well known to uh, uh, organizational behaviorist theory. They're interested, like all bureaucrats are, in career advancement. 
Career advancement means, inevitably, among other things, making their bosses look good. Their bosses, more more often than not, were present at the creation of the policy at issue, and the policies are therefore sticky down. They're easier to continue than to terminate or cut back. The net effect of all this is that there's no need to confront the president on these sorts of issues. The deference on the part of the president and his staff normally, not with some exceptions, normally is automatic. So the president very seldom needs to be as explicit as he was to his staff, reportedly on the subject of drone strikes by the CIA. The CIA gets what it wants, Obama said to his staff. The CIA gets what it wants. Normally that's implicit, and normally it applies not only to the CIA, but the NSA and other elements of the military and law enforcement and and, uh, intelligence community. And the consequence is that the programs are on autopilot. John Kerry's very telling and succinct and descriptive term explaining why the uh, tapping of Angela Merkel's phone continued from the Bush administration into the Obama administration. The program was simply, he said, on autopilot. I'm going to say just a very quick word about the courts. You may have noticed something rather peculiar, and that is this. In the big brouhaha that exists concerning the president's authority under the Constitution and existing AUMFs to use force against Syria and the Islamic State in Iraq, no one's brought any lawsuit. I don't and I I try to follow these things, I'm not able to identify a single lawsuit that is pending anywhere in the United States challenging the president's power. Why on earth would that be? In Marbury against Madison, Chief Justice Marshall, speaking for a unanimous Supreme Court, said in 1803, it is emphatically the power and the, 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 the authority and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Why don't the courts say what the law is? Answer, because lawyers know that a lawsuit on this issue or virtually any other national security issue is not even going to be heard on the merits by the courts. Courts have devised a number of doctrines to dismiss, before hearing on the merits, these sorts of cases. They're dismissed as political questions ripeness, for mootness, for lack of standing, because they involve inevitably state secrets. And the result is that no one gets a day in court, or often more importantly, in the court of public opinion. And I'll just give you one example, because our time is limited. Shortly after 9-11, little mistake was made by the CIA and their pals in the Macedonian security services. They picked up an individual named El Masri uh, on the Macedonian border. They thought he was affiliated with al-Qaeda. The guy had no idea why he was suddenly detained. There was a mistake. They had misspelled his name. They got the wrong guy. El Masri was taken to a hotel room in the capital for like 21 days. Um, 
and he was told that he would be shot if he left, taken from there to Afghanistan for in excess of three months, held in a filthy cell where he was brutally tortured um, and interrogated. And at the end of this, he was um, taken to the middle of nowhere in Albania and dropped on a roadside. Now, we know that what I've just said is true because the facts were found not by any court in the United States. No, his lawsuit was dismissed on the basis of the state secrets privilege. We know that the facts are true because the facts were found by the European Court of Human Rights, which decided 15 to nothing against Macedonia and implicitly, of course, the United States. The truth is, if you look at the record, you will be hard pressed to find for all the supposed pushback of the United States Supreme Court in the four big cases decided during the Bush administration, you will be hard pressed to find a single case in which any plaintiff, even a plaintiff alleging the most grievous injuries, was accorded a day in court or awarded a dime in damages because of alleged abuses of the Bush or Obama terrorism policies, counterterrorism policies. And the Obama administration, uh, as I said at the outset, continues to invoke the state secrets privilege. So I'm going to move on to the Congress. I'm, I'm not going to talk about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which um, really is, I, I think, something you're familiar with. And, has been operating more as an annex of the executive branch and barely ought to be discussed in the same breath as real courts. So let me move on to talk about the Congress. Um, in looking for an answer to what ails Congress, why is it that there hasn't been any vote on the use of force against the Islamic State? Why is it that there may well not be a vote on the floor of the Senate or House of Representatives uh, on this issue. In, in looking for a, a, an answer to the question, what ails Congress, the place to start is with Congress's eyes and ears, namely congressional oversight committees. The whole legislative process depends upon the integrity of congressional oversight. So let's, because our time is limited, look at only one of those committees probably the most important oversight committee in this realm, the Senate Intelligence Committee. It's been said that, quote, nothing of significance happens in American intelligence without the Intelligence Committee's knowing about it, unquote. That is not correct. <laughs> the Senate Intelligence Committee did not know that the CIA had set up a string of black site secret prisons. It didn't know that the CIA taped the waterboarding of prisoners that went on in a number of those prisons. The committee didn't know that those tapes were destroyed by the CIA when it did that. The committee didn't know how the telephony bulk metadata records revealed by Snowden's leak were being used. 
Senator Feinstein said she had no idea. The committee didn't know that the NSA was engaged in a program of intercepting the communications of our closest allies, such as Angela Merkel, from their personal cell phones. Um, the committee did know, on the other hand, that the CIA had mined the harbors of Managua, but it didn't know that it knew that because the chairman of the committee, Barry Goldwater, didn't notice that that had been reported to the committee when he complained that the United States had uh, committed an act of war against Nicaragua. He was embarrassed to find out that it had already been told to his committee. He shouldn't have been surprised because he had earlier said that um, there shouldn't even be a Senate Intelligence Committee. And in his, in his view, uh, what the committee was being told by the intelligence community was, quote, none of our business. Um, my time is uh, about to expire, and I've only begun to talk about the, the record uh, and, and the, the fact that, as you know, um, when the um, NSA effectively uh, misrepresented the truth to the committee uh, concerning the question asked by Ron Clapper, the least untruthful uh, answer that James Clapper said he could think up. The committee did nothing. Last year, when th earlier this year, when the CIA spied on the committee, probably in violation of a number of different statutes, and then lied about it in an effort to cover it up, the CIA again said nothing. Um, having worked for Senator Frank Church, it struck me as curious that the committee did nothing when it found out the following. When Frank Church, um, and, and I'll conclude with this, uh, when Frank Church uh, described the uh, NSA surveillance program that had uh, involved the compilation of watch lists of uh, civil rights activists and anti-war activists. He spoke these prophetic words. If the NSA's awesome capabilities are ever turned inward on the American people, the United States will cross an abyss from which there is no return. The very moment that Frank Church spoke those words, he was being spied on by NSA. NSA was intercepting his international phone calls. That came out over the last year. And the Senate Intelligence Committee, of course, again, did nothing. Um, I'll just conclude, if I, if I might, with, with, with one simple observation, uh, because the, the aim of the book is not to um, prescribe, it's to describe, it's not to put forth a set of policy recommendations. It's to explain uh, the, the condition of duality that has arisen within the United States government. I close with simply this observation. Many Americans on the subject of reform believe 
the United States has a kind of a perpetual motion government, a machine that will run of itself. The framers wisely set ambition against ambition with three branches that oppose the encroachments on each other's power, and that this um, constant um, struggle for the control of American national security policy will produce an equilibrium that will guarantee and safeguard American freedom. That vision is only half true. And it's a very serious mistake to believe that the framers thought that was enough. No, they thought that that equilibrium would be generated only, only if the all-important predicate of civic virtue were present, namely a informed and engaged citizenry that elected individuals committed to the public interest. And absent that all-important predicate, the whole equilibrium they believed would collapse. And that, unfortunately, is, I'm, I'm sad to say, that my conclusion is that that's the state that our, our country is now in and the very precarious position that we're now in. The United States electorate is characterized, as Justice David Souter put it, um, by pervasive civic ignorance. And that's the ultimate driver of double government, just as, as Badgett hypothesized in, in 1867. Where this is going to lead is anyone's guess, but I suggest to you today that if the trajectory that we are on continues, we are headed toward uh, a system in which the Madisonian institutions, Congress, the presidency, and the courts uh, are transformed into institutional museum pieces, rather like the British House of Lords and monarchy. Thank you very much. Well, I hope maybe Jeremy will cheer us up, because <laughs> I'm not going to help. Uh, <laughs> It seems like uh, ages ago now, but the, if you can remember, there really was a time when civil libertarians, some of them at least, held out hope for the Obama presidency. Uh, if elected, this former constitutional law professor was going to be our first civil libertarian president, Jeffrey Rosen enthused in the New York Times op-ed page in 2008. Uh, and on inauguration night in 2009, the Washington Post reported that defense lawyers at Guantanamo Bay formed a boisterous conga line, chanting, rule of law, baby. Well, they woke up to a hell of a hangover, one that's uh, going on six years. Uh, our first civil libertarian president, as uh, Professor Glennon outlines in the book, is, among other things, launched uh, more than six times as many drone strikes as uh, his predecessor, including the remote control execution of an American citizen. Uh, President Obama has continued and expanded dragnet sur domestic surveillance programs based on a secret interpretation of the Patriot Act, and he's currently in the middle of his second undeclared war, uh, all of which leads to the central question in Pro Professor Glennon's book, 
why does national security policy remain constant even when one president is replaced by another who is a candidate repeatedly, forcefully, and eloquently promised fundamental changes in that policy? It's an important question, and this is an important book. It's also, at times, an extremely dark and radical one, and I mean that in the best possible way. <laughs> uh, as Professor Glennon outlines in the book, there are, uh, we, we tend to spend uh, much of our time on two conventional explanations for why, even though presidents come and go, uh, policies remain the same. Uh, the first is what he terms the rational actor model, that we get the national security policies that we do because these are the national security policies we need given the threats that we face. And this is the explanation that's preferred by Jack Goldsmith, the former Office of Legal Counsel, head in the Bush administration, uh, a, currently a Harvard Law professor, and he serves as a bit of a foil for Professor Glennon in the book. Uh, as Goldsmith has put it, quote, the presidency invariably gives its occupants a sober outlook on the problems of national security. So sitting in the Oval, getting a face full of the president's daily briefing every morning tends to concentrate the mind wonderfully, as the story goes. Uh, so it's no surprise that confronted with new information and new responsibilities, learning about the dangerous world that we live in, uh, Obama changed his mind about the correctness of the Bush counterterror policies. Uh, Goldsmith quotes Jack Kennedy's observation that it is easier to make the speeches than it is finally to make the judgments. The second conventional explanation for policy continuity is what Professor Glennon calls the government politics model. Uh, when it comes to the president, it would emphasize factors like who the president is, the content, content of his character, and also what political pressures are brought to bear on the presidency. So in this account, maybe, maybe what the president's daily briefing actually tends to concentrate the president's mind on isn't so much the rational pursuit of uh, national security, but political self-preservation. Uh, he becomes ever more aware that he's going to be held personally responsible if a bomb goes off anywhere in the country, uh, particularly when, as in, in this case, He's a liberal Democratic president carrying a McGovernite albatross and facing Republicans who are rabidly eager to paint him as soft on terror. Well, of course, it's insane to hold any elected official personally responsible for providing seamless protection to, in a, to a country of over 300 million people. All the surveillance and the drone strikes in the world can't begin to meet that boundless conception of responsibility. But as Obama's one-time national security advisor, James L. Jones, put it, who wants to be the guy that says we don't need these powers anymore, and then three weeks later, something happens? Now, Professor Glennon offers a third explanation, one that's been overshadowed by these first two conventional explanations, and he, he just told you about it. The, organizational behavior model, that increasingly the real power to shape national security policy isn't in the hands of elected officials. It uh, resides in this Trumanite network of managers who populate 
the uh, military, uh, intelligence, law enforcement, and diplomatic bureaucracies. Uh, the national security state is drifting towards becoming this autonomous, self-perpetuating entity. Uh, it increasingly sets the table for elected officials' choices and dictates the terms to them. Uh, reading the book reminded me of how some years back I heard a cynical libertarian, I can't remember who it is anymore, but I remember what he said, uh, sum up our political dilemma as follows. He said, the federal government is a runaway train and presidential elections are a contest to see who gets to sit up in the front cab and pretend he's driving. Well, where this explanation is strongest, I think, is in the realm of state surveillance, which is the central case study in the book. Uh, hey, Professor Glennon mentioned the uh, embarrassing revelation in the summer of 2013 that the NSA was tapping German Chancellor Angela Merkel's cell phone. Uh, and when the question arose, what did the president know and when did he know it, uh, the answer apparently was not much. Uh, he learned it about the same time that the rest of us did. Um, and uh, as Professor Glennon has said, the, you know, the, the, one of the statements that was made about this was by uh, Secretary of State John Kerry, who said that the president didn't know about it. The Merkel wiretap occurred like a lot of other NSA programs. It effectively occurred on autopilot. On the one hand, that's what you'd expect the administration to say. And on the other hand, I find it totally believable. Uh, it's consistent with the early, earlier history of NSA abuses uncovered by the Church Committee in the 70s. Uh, Operation Shamrock, for example, which uh, collected the content of virtually all cable traffic uh, entering or leaving the United States for a period of about 30 years. Uh, is 150,000 messages a, a month at its height. Uh, as the committee's final report concluded, it was probably the largest governmental interception program affecting Americans ever undertaken. And yet it's not clear that any president ever ordered or approved this program or was even aware of it. Uh, when Shamrock's existence was exposed in the mid-'70s, Louis Tordella the longtime deputy director of the NSA, admitted that he didn't know whether any president or attorney general had ever been briefed on it. It just happened and it went on uh, as a result of a bureaucratic imperative that a later NSA head, General uh, Keith Alexander, has approvingly described as collected all. Uh, where I think maybe uh, the uh, organizational behavior model has slightly less explanatory powers in the area of presidential war making, uh, an area where the president, uh, the head Madisonian uh, by default, uh, has accumulated enormous discretion, despite the fact that Madison himself would not be, uh, be happy with a, a, as much power of the power of a war and peace that the president has accumulated, that's sort of where we are. Uh, it, so if you take four major war powers decisions in the Obama administration, uh, the Afghan surge, the escalation of the drone wars, the Libya intervention, and the current war against ISIS, 
I would put the Trumanite win-loss record at about 500 here. Uh, the military and national security bureaucracy favored uh, the surge in Afghanistan and heavily favored the drone escalation and conditioned uh, the choices that confronted the president such that we got them. Uh, but they opposed the Libyan frolic and detour and prominent Trumanites, hard to say, but at least the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and some others, uh, appeared reluctant to engage in our latest war in the, in the Middle East. Uh, but of course, we went to the war in Libya and we're at war with ISIS in Iraq, in Iraq and Syria now. Uh, in the latter case, the war with ISIS, Operation Inherent Resolve, uh, domestic politics seems like a better explanation, the government politics model that we talked about before. Uh, the near irresistible demand that the president do something about the beheading of Americans and the implosion of the Iraqi state. Well, this is something, so we're doing it. Our experience, uh, so our experience during the Obama administration suggests that we get the wars the Trumanites want and some that they don't. But this is hardly fatal to Professor Glennon's thesis. As he said, there have to be exceptions. Uh, and what's more, uh, the, the theory is not supposed to predict every war that we have or every program uh, that we end up getting. Uh, a, good, a good theory of institutional behavior, he says, can at best predict only tendency over time. And his predicts that the policies in national security will change very little from one administration to the next. And on that score, it's holding up uh, very well, I think. Uh, I've always been partial to one version of the government politics uh, explanation that we've touched on a couple of times here that if the political reality is such that the president will be held personally accountable for any domestic terror attack, uh, don't be surprised when he seeks the powers to match that responsibility or welcomes them if they're handed to him. Uh, but again, Professor Glennon acknowledges that it's not either or, makes the point that these explanations overlap and in a way are policy dilemma is heavily overdetermined. Uh, very quickly, I just want to uh, say that as you look through some of the journalistic accounts that have been published uh, based on insider testimony of how decisions were made in the administration, you find a lot of support for both. Uh, in his book, Killer Capture, Daniel Clydman talks about how the enormous effect that the failed Christmas Day bombing, the underwear bombing, of 2009 had on the administration. Uh, the psychic toll of Christmas Day was profound. Obama realized that if a failed terror attempt could suck up so much political oxygen, a successful attack would absolute, absolutely devastate his presidency. And as much as he liked to talk about first principles, Obama also had a powerful instinct for self-preservation. Uh, that helped shape a lot of what uh, came after. Uh, body scanners at airports, ramped up drone strikes, targeting of American citizen, et cetera, et cetera. But to Professor Glennon's point, uh, pressure from the Trumanites was there well before Christmas 2009. Uh, in James Mann's book, The Obamians, uh, he writes, 
about a concerted effort early in the administration by CIA Director Michael, ha Michael Hayden and others to scare the hell out of the new Obama team and get them to preserve and perpetuate the status quo. Uh, the private name for this effort was the Aw Shit Campaign. <laughs> it seems to have worked. Uh, Clydeman, for his part, reports that uh, both Harold Coe, the legal advisor at State, and Jay Johnson, the Pentagon's general counsel, used the same metaphor for the pressure coming from the military to approve more targeted killings. They both described it as a runaway train, one that, as Johnson said, you would have to throw yourself on the tracks to stop it. This, finally, uh, illuminates something that had been mysterious to me. Uh, Obama's uh, May 2013 drone speech at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. It had seemed very odd to me at the time. Uh, in this speech about drone policy, the president seemed to be speaking not as president, but as his own loyal opposition, uh, a thoughtful critic who might uh, conduct himself differently if he were installed as head of <laughs> Drone Fleet Command. He said things like, unless we discipline our thinking, we may be drawn into more wars we don't need to fight or continue to grant presidents unbound powers. And the very precision of drone strikes can lead a president to view them as a cure-all for terrorism. And I remember thinking, a president? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Who's in charge here, anyway? But having read Professor Glennon's book, Obama's speech seems less strange to me than it did at first. You get a greater appreciation of how the so-called most powerful man in the world might actually perceive himself to be somewhat powerless. It's true that in many of these cases, at least where he was aware of what was going on, Obama, like any president, had the formal power to say no. But saying no would require resisting enormous pressure from Trumanites and other Madisonians alike. And anybody willing to do what it takes to become president is unlikely to transform himself into a self-denying Cincinnatus once he takes office. Political survivors don't jump in front of trains. One final thought. In the political circles I hang out in, it's unsurprisingly, probably like many of us, I know a lot of people who hold out hope that Rand Paul will be our first civil libertarian president. Professor Glennon's book, I think, gives us good reason to ponder just how audacious a hope that really is. Thank you. Okay, I find myself in the um, unusual position of being the person who's supposed to hold out hope. Uh, so I'm going to give it um, my best shot. Um, and I think I can provide a little, but I mean, I, 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 uh, I think I can only really do it in a relative sense. Um, the, uh, I have to admit that, uh, I have to start, I should say, with that. With the the notion that this is a this is a great book, it's a sort of important book. I think I I think that really every student of U.S. government 
should read it. Um, it's impressive in the way that it assembles in a sort of incredibly non-conspiratorial way, in a way that appeals very much to the, to the organizational theorist in me, a set of incentives that creates this, this system that we've all described uh, and describes its continuity. Um, and I wish that I had read it before I went into the government. Um, it would not have helped me to get anything done, but at least I would have had a better understanding of why I was getting screwed on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, at, at the same time, the, you know, the framework wasn't, even as I entered the government, it wasn't entirely unfamiliar to me. It wasn't totally a surprise. I had been a, a very much a student of someone that I suspect Professor Glennon is also a student of, Sir Humphrey Appleby, who is a character in uh, the British television show Yes Minister, who is the sort of embodiment of uh, the Trumanite network that he describes and the permanent government is, as it's known often in the United Kingdom. And he described a, a, a method of acting which I saw very often in government, which I tried to employ, which is that you uh, is that when you're providing an option to your boss, you, you, will you provide him with two options, the one you want, the one you don't want, and if he picks the one you don't want, you say, well, Mr. Minister, that's very brave. <laughs> and you usually, you usually get what you want. Um, and I was, I have to say, I was still, despite having devoured and, and admired uh, Humphrey Appleby, I was still a bit surprised at uh, the degree to which uh, the, the permanent bureaucracy within the government is able to, is able to assert its power and exert control over uh, the elected officials. And I, in, in part, formed, and it's been informing my work since I left the government, this concept of a national security bureaucracy, which was, I guess, my lame attempt to define the, the, the Trumanites. But I very much like the way that Professor Glennon described these concepts. I found them useful as concepts and as categories. But now I think I, maybe I can get to a, a little bit of hope. Um, I do think that uh, he underestimated the reserves of the Mad Madisonians within the US government. Um, the, the, the presidency, the Congress, are not the House of Lords. They're not the monarchy. Um, they have actually a great deal of power, even if the permanent bureaucracy also does. And uh, it's a little bit difficult to discern this from the degree of policy continuity, because uh, policy continuity on a lot of issues is, as is implied by the book, uh, a little bit overdetermined, particularly when it comes when it comes to the counterterrorism area. And I think actually on counterterrorism, all of the models that Professor Glennon alert, alludes to predict policy continuity. Um, the, uh, the, in fact, the president, uh, when he entered office, uh, was, yes, on one sense, given he was definitely given the aw shit um, uh, briefing. I, I was too. And you know what? scary. <laughs> uh, and the flow of threat information um, going through the, the government is, is quite, uh, does definitely elucidate the world. But of course, you know, you are, 
as my mother used to say, not paranoid if someone is out to get you. And there is, in fact, a lot of genuine threats out there. And there are parts of the Auschwitz uh, briefing which are irrefutable. And I think that they had a big effect on the president. But, more, but I think more importantly, the fact that he had to make these decisions and the fact that we have the political culture that we have. It may be true that it makes no sense to blame one single man for the defense of 300 million, but we do. And that is the reality that a president has to face. And I think, in fact, the president uh, was very much in favor of uh, the policy on counterterrorism that, that we ended up with. Um, it, the, I think that it's clear, it was clear to me within the government that despite the, uh, the power of the Trumanites, the Madisonians had, in fact, had many levers, still have many levers. They have, as Professor Glennon pointed out, uh, hundreds of appointees. Uh, this pales in comparison to the, the three million or so permanent employees. But in fact, as he points out, it's only several hundred Trumanites who are important. Um, there is more, more importantly, within the, the Trumanite bowels of the government, a real terror of the Congress and the media. And uh, in fact, a, a, and, of a, and of the political appointees, there is a um, constant deterrent effect of the, that you can feel on a daily basis of, the, uh, of these institutions on what the Trumanites can and will do. They have what they call the Washington Post test. How will this look if it, happens on, if it appears on the Washington Post tomorrow? And in fact, as, as we're sitting in the sort of um, shadow of the uh, Edward Snowden revelations, which, are, which have been, in some sense, the biggest defeat for, uh, for the Trumanites of, um, uh, in, the, in the intelligence community for decades, since the church committee, I suppose. Um, it's, it's intriguing to think of just how difficult that has been for them. They have, as was demonstrated, fought back. And they have not lost maybe as much power as we would have expected them to. But for them, it has been a disaster. And it has been a serious loss. Um, what I saw in the government on a daily basis was a, a struggle, an explicit struggle, between the Madisonians and uh, the Trumanites, as, as Professor Glennon puts it, which the Madisonians sometimes won and sometimes lost. lost. And I'm, uh, I'm not clear in which, uh, on the trend. Um, I think if, pro if you look at the trend, certainly from the 1940s, you see a definite increase in power of the Trumanites. But I think we are seeing some pushback. It's important to understand that they have, that these constituencies have different sources and different levers of power. Um, and the Trumanites are particularly strong when it comes to the intelligence community because of the issue of secrecy, which is um, a real, the, the critical element, as, as Professor Glennon estimate, uh, illuminates in the power of the structural power of the Trumanites. But in the areas in which, um, in which secrecy is less present, and in the areas in which uh, the politics are more, uh, uh, pertain more, the Madisonians can be much more powerful. And this, this gets at what, uh, uh, at what Mr. Healy was talking about, too, which is the question of military intervention, which I've been studying. So I wanted to give us some 
examples of, let's say, Madisonian Trumanite struggles over the issues of the use of force in the Obama administration, which I think have been illuminating. There was um, the issue of the surge um, in Afghanistan in 2009. I think this is a fascinating uh, struggle between the permanent government and the political government. Um, the Obama administration, in my estimation, the president did not want to have the surge in Afghanistan and was, as was described, um, somewhat pushed into it, somewhat maneuvered into it by um, the military and by uh, the, the, the General McChrystal Review that I took part in. And so I saw that, I saw that happening and I saw the White House's frustration with it. Um, but I also saw them fight back. And I saw them, and when the president came out and acknowledged this surge and, and, and announced this surge, he put a strict limit on it, a limit that infuriated the military, uh, and in a limit that he was able to stick to, because he recognized uh, that if, if, he, if he couldn't win every battle, if the military had access to the Congress and had access to the public, he could, he could win some long-term battles if he played them well. And that was a long-term battle that he, that he won. Uh, the Iraq withdrawal was a similar case. The permanent government did, I, and I should add, by the way, that there's a sort of interesting feature of the permanent government when it comes to military intervention, which is that it never wants to start a war, um, but it always wants to escalate it once it's started. Uh, and it tends, to give, this, it tends to give the president on any issue of war and peace two options. Um, appeasement or World War III. And he is always searching for a middle option. Um, I, I suppose eventually they'll be giving World War IV. Uh, the, and so um, when it came to the uh, Iraq withdrawal issue, they were very much against withdrawal from Iraq. This was a unanimity within the national security bureaucracy. But the president was able uh, to enforce it on the, um, to enforce that withdrawal on the national security bureaucracy by using the Iraqis themselves, by using the uh, Trumanite need to have a, a status of forces agreement with the Iraqis, which would exempt um, American soldiers from, uh, from prosecution in Iraq. By failing, interestingly, to secure that agreement with the Iraqis, he ensured that the national security bureaucracy would not be able to oppose his withdrawal from Iraq. Um, Libya has already been referred to. This was a fascinating case, and I was working on it a little bit in the government. Um, so as was alluded to, the, the national security bureaucracy did not want to get involved in this war. The president made that decision. Um, but then I think the more interesting case is what happened afterwards, because that's typically what happens. Um, but what happened afterwards is that uh, the national security bureaucracy, the Trumanite network, I guess, wanted to uh, escalate at every moment in that war. And the president had determined that he was going to exercise control over this war. He said in the first day of the war that he would hand it over after 10 days um, to NATO and to the British and the French primarily. Um, it was intriguing. Uh, when that decision was made, nobody believed him. Uh, nobody within the government believed him. No, neither, nobody in Europe, nobody in, in Britain or France believed him. Ten days after the war started, 
he had a video conference with um, Cameron and Sarkozy. And he said, OK, it's all yours. And they said, what? Um, he had to ride herd on the national security bureaucracy every one of those 10 days to ensure that we uh, handed it over. But he was able to do that through using um, a very important technique, which was to put this, uh, to put very solid lines on where, on how the national security bureaucracy could escalate. As, pro as Professor Glennon describes in the book, the national security bureaucracy is never directly insubordinate. It never disobeys in order. It just erodes the, the president's authority by things that he, by things that he doesn't have time to deal with, essentially, and by um, uh, working carefully on definitions. So the boots on the ground rule, which we've seen so prominently in Libya and now in Syria, has been an effort by the president um, to um, has been an effort by the president to put a very strict limit on the national security bureaucracy to avoid its tendency toward escalation in both Libya and now in uh, Syria, Iraq. I think that the key, and I, I should say also, we see, and it's been described in the way that the president and the White House are fighting back against this, is a slow movement of power away from the agencies towards the White House. And people have decried this very frequently as the sort of end of cabinet government. But to me, it represents part of this struggle that between the Madisonians and the Trumanites, which is ongoing. For me, I suppose, if I was going to um, make some recommendations about this, I think that the key is, is competition, is introducing competition. Neither the Madisonians nor the Trumanites are truly united. After, after all, the president spends most of his time fighting with the Congress. Trumanites have been very adept at exploiting Madisonian divisions. The military, especially, is very good at going to the right committee and getting, and getting extra ships and things like that. Uh, it used to be the case, I think, that, um, uh, that the Madisonians were better at setting up competing bureaucratic interests and ensuring that they had more than one agency which, would, which had expertise and which would give them different views. This was particularly the case in the military before Goldwater-Nichols in 1986. And to some extent, this the case in the intelligence community before the intelligence reform of 2004. The Trumanites recognize the value of collusion and always try to do it. Um, the Madisonians, I think, could assert much greater power if they recognize the value of competition. This can be sometimes difficult to justify, because you're essentially saying we need two government agencies to do, roughly speaking, the same thing. But it turns out we always have more than one government agency to do roughly the same thing. So the key really is to prevent them from colluding. And I think that there are lots of ways that we can and do do that. And I guess that's what I would pay attention to. Um, so thank you. Well, thanks for those great remarks. It's always a good sign uh, when the discussants have a lot to say. Uh, when you just get to the discussion, and it sort of ends with a thud. That's never a good sign. So I'll take this as a. A good thing. We'll go to the question and answer period now. Please wait for me to call on you. Please identify yourself and please get right to it. Uh, I see a gentleman right there. My name's Andy Hawks. I'm a local attorney <coughs> and I'm pleased to say a Fletcher graduate. Um, 
one of the continuities of national security policy going back decades now has been the refusal of the president to ask for formal declarations of war and the unwillingness of Congress to insist on it. Um, we're now finding it difficult even to get authorization of force resolutions passed. I was wondering if Professor Glenning thinks the Trumanite network is at least partially responsible for the demise of the Declaration of War Clause. Uh, no, I don't. <coughs> the, you're, you're, you're quite uh, accurate in, in suggesting that the United States doesn't declare war anymore. Uh, I think the last time that we did that was the series of declarations that were enacted by the Congress in uh, following Pearl Harbor in 1941 against Japan and Germany and their allies. And since that time, uh, Congress has used uh, its legislative powers to authorize use of force, most prominently in instruments such as the um, Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. The infamous Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was a joint resolution. Uh, the AUMF uh, enacted uh, to uh, authorize use of force to expel Saddam from uh, Kuwait. The AUMF adopted uh, two days after 9-11. Uh, there are other examples. And, and so the, the question that you ask is whether there's some constitutional infirmity with these uh, with the use of these instruments as opposed to a formal declaration of war. And the answer is no. There's no case law directly on point. The Nixon administration, uh, like the Johnson administration before it, insisted that the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was the functional equivalent of a declaration of war. And I think that for all relevant constitutional purposes, that's correct. There's no particular advantage to be had by the Trumanite network, I suppose, um, in, in, in pushing for statutory authorization as opposed to a declaration of war. Each requires the same majority vote in the Senate, the same majority vote in the House of Representatives. Um, if anything, I suppose, the latitude of the Trumanite network would be broader following a declaration of war only because it has a certain symbolic force that an AUMF doesn't have. So I, I don't see any, any constitutional difficulty with using an AUMF, uh, nor do I think the Trumanite network is advantaged really one way or the other. And if anything, it's disadvantaged, as I say, for the reasons that I've said. Let's take another question, right down here in the front. Hi, uh, Kenneth Rothschild. Uh, thank you very much for this presentation. It's interesting to hear Cato um, taking the side of Obama. But to some extent, the government itself and um, the Madisonian section of it is complicit in this whole thing. Uh, they could articulate what is going on and bring some of this before the public. Um, so 
What I'm saying is if we don't get people with the guts enough to stand up, our politicians, and, and speak back because it's actually challenging their authority, uh, then we have no hope. So my question to you is, are you finding any centers within the Madisonian government that are willing to articulate this and present it to the public and say, hey, this is what I intended, this is what happened? We have to hear. Some of the, some of the dirty laundry has to show up. We have to see it. Thank you. And I would add, in the fight of Obama versus Obama, we've taken Obama's side in this matter. <laughs> Michael, did you want to jump in on that? Well, it's a tough question. I, I, it's, it's, it's hard uh, to identify sources of hope. I, I, I wish I uh, shared Jeremy's optimism. Uh, maybe I'll listen to the tape and come to a different conclusion hearing it a second time. Uh, and maybe it's just uh, you know, some deep-seated psychological <laughs> tendency to view the glass as half empty rather than half full, as, as he does, and to look at evidence on the other side is more probative. You'd have to come to your own judgment uh, looking at the evidence in the book. Sources of hope, um, the Senate Intelligence Committee, I suppose, in pressing for the release of the Senate torture report against the combined forces of the CIA and the Obama White House um, would be about the closest that one could come. But if the McClatchy leaks about the substance of that report are correct, it seems almost like a tempest in a teapot. Um, I may be one of the only people in town, and I'm not in town, <laughs> to, to, uh, to, to suggest that the, whether um, some benefit actually derived from torture is almost a matter of inconsequence. Hypothetically, it could have. and spending tens of millions of dollars to determine whether there was, in fact, a causal nexus between waterboarding and some actionable intelligence strikes me almost as beside the point. Yes, I'd like to know it, but I'd like to know, more importantly, why did this happen? What structure was in place that was supposed to stop it? How did that structure fail? Who disobeyed the law? What was done about it? Did the individuals, for example, who read John Yu's memos, the, the infamous torture memos, um, act within the bounds, the parameters that were set forth by Yu himself? Did they even see the Yu torture memos? Did they act oblivious to the law? Did, or did they pay attention, thinking that, as Jack Goldsmith says, they got a get-out-of-jail-free card from John Yu? Um, and suppose John Yu's torture memos were simply beyond the pale legally. Suppose no reasonable lawyer would sign his name to those things. Um, should immunity still attach as a consequence of frivolous legal analysis? These are questions that the report should address, but as I say, and I may be wrong, but judging from the, the, these excellent McClatchy reports on what's in the still classified Senate torture report, it doesn't address those issues. And it doesn't address them, I, I might say, I, I suggest, for um, perhaps one 
reason that is understandable. It would focus inevitable attention on the job done by the Senate Intelligence Committee itself in overseeing these things. Where was the committee while all this was happening? The referee's counting to nine. Should we, is, will Madison get back up, or is he, is he done? Jeremy, you want to? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, look, I think it's, it's going to be difficult for any president to sort of stand up and, and, ta and um, decry his pusillanimity in the face of his own government. I mean, we have, we have seen uh, Obama just in this panel being mocked essentially for that. Um, and so he's not going, no president would ever do that. I think the political incentives are against it. The struggle that he'll have with the Trumanites in his own government will always be under the covers. Um, the, it, it seems to me that this is a role uh, which ultimately should fall to the Congress um, and to a degree to the courts. And I agree with Professor Glennon that they have, to a large degree, um, fallen down on the job, particularly uh, recently. I mean, I think we've seen a few little quivers in the, in the um, Senate intelligence kerfluffle with the CIA over the, over the spy, and that was very interesting. And it, it alienated Senator Feinstein, who has been a um, you know, staunch supporter of the intelligence community. So we see that they can overstep their bounds. But I think that Professor Glennon's book actually provides us with some of the reasons why um, the, the, the Congress hasn't really succeeded at this, uh, in, particularly in recent years. And that is because people don't want them to. They don't really care. Um, there's no political benefit for it. And um, from the standpoint of the citizenry, this is a rational response because the country runs uh, reasonably well. And you and I might be upset at these various scandals in Washington, but they're very inside the beltway things which don't affect people's lives very, very much. Um, and so I think that actually the Madisonian institutions have the capacity and even the levers um, to do this kind of thing, as we've seen in, the, in these examples, but they don't in general have the incentives. Um, and so I, what that means to me is that things have to get a little bit worse before that they can get better. And there is a sort of dialectical quality to these things that when something like, I mean, it's been fascinating to watch the NSA scandal because nobody cares in the, in the country that um, people are spying on Chancellor Merkel. And so that's not likely to change. But people do care that they are being spied on. And I think we have seen a change in the politics of that, which has inspired to a degree uh, some of the Madisonian institutions to push back a little. And we'll see how that, how that turns out. The struggle continues. But uh, the politics can matter, but the, the people have to want them to. I, I guess, I, Jeremy, I, I think that you've, you've, you've highlighted the, very succinctly uh, the reservation that I have about your optimism. I certainly don't agree that Congress has the levers, that the courts have the levers. They could do the kinds of things that I've been suggesting they should have done, but they don't. And you identify, the, I think, the correct reason. There's an incentive structure that dissuades them from doing that. So the, the formal presence of the levers of power and checks and balances comes to mean um, uh, to run to naught if there's no incentive to employ those checks. 
can yeah. we can we blame James Madison for the failure of the Madisonians in a sense? Uh, I mean, I think you touched on it a, a little bit. The uh, uh, and it occurred to me in the question about uh, AUMFs and declarations of war. The uh, the notion that ambition counteracts ambition and uh, that each branch of uh, fights to maintain its constitutional turf sort of elides the the fact that uh, in the case of the presidency, individual and institutional incentives for turf maximization and protection align, but Congress is sort of an abstraction and individual congressmen do not have in the Madisonian system as it's evolved, uh, a whole lot of incentive to uh, care about the erosion of congressional authority. And it does seem uh, that you need a, a dramatic historical moment like you saw uh, in the wake of Watergate, in the wake, uh, you know, in, in the revelations that led up to the Church and Pike committees. You need, uh, because of that, uh, that skewed incentive structure, that leads every president to leave the office more powerful than he found it, and individual congressmen, by and large, not to care too much about the prerogatives of Congress. You need a, a really uh, extraordinary historical moment to get even the reforms you got out of the 70s, like the War Powers Resolution and uh, FISA and uh, use Ryan and et cetera, all of which have pretty much eroded. Yeah, that's, I mean, you could even look at more recent the Iraq war, the financial crisis. There have been, you know, you can certainly point to things that have changed, but even, you know, medium-sized calamities we can sort of shrug off uh, with plan. Yeah, no, look, I agree with all of that. I just want to emphasize that we are a successful country. We are actually <laughs> the most successful country on in the world. And that means that continuity has a certain value and a certain appeal. Uh, and so these... These moments that you're talking about have been, you know, by our standards, dramatic, but actually by the standards of a lot of countries, not that, dra not that dramatic. And so this continuity is something which, which actually, as a status quo power, we broadly want, and which certainly the population accepts. And, that, and, and so I, I absolutely agree that this is about incentives, but there's a reason that those incentives are there. We don't have the politics for this, and it has to come from politics. And if it did, I think, when I said that they had the levers, that's what I meant. If they, if they had the political incentives to do it, they would have the institutional levers to operate them. But they don't, and that is about our politics, not about our Washington government. Let's take one more question right there in the back. Gentleman on the aisle. Thank you. Uh, Jay Stanley from the ACLU. So I guess one question I have is, is it really a... a a useful way to think about this as a dualistic thing, two governments, as opposed to you have a lot of political inputs into policy making. You have different political constituencies, often contradictory, often with, you have different political parties, you have different constituencies within different political parties. Sometimes you have populations that care about policy. For example, Cubans care about Cuba policy, um, lots of different inputs. And we should view the, the bureaucracies as one of those inputs as an independent political force um, and a, as a vector. And we look at how all of the vectors, um, you know, push together on policy. And sometimes 
the, the, the push of the bureaucracy will align with others of those political constituencies and sometimes they will con conflict. Isn't that a more useful way to think about things than in this dualistic, um, uh, you know, um, twin government model? And then I, another, I guess it's a point that I'd be interested to know what you think about, which is it seems like it's, it's a very good service. It's very important that people come to a more sophisticated view of how government works, how policy works with bureaucracies and, and sort of the machine-like nature of a lot of what happens, as opposed to thinking of everything in, in personal terms. It's the president, it's Obama, it's Bush. Um, on the other hand, you sort of undercut that by calling it Trumanite, because isn't wasn't Truman just as hapless as every other president? Um, and, and maybe he was the guy at, in front of the train when this happened to um, you know, mature with the secrecy policies. Um, but uh, you know, I just wonder what you think about that. Uh, good question. I, I want to give Jeremy a, a chance to respond to this and give him the last word because I'm going to disagree once again with something that he suggested a moment ago. You are, in effect, um, presenting the case for the government politics model. And Jeremy suggested uh, that the government politics model, along with the so-called rational basis model, also would predict policy continuity. So your question is, doesn't the government politics model, which is perhaps far broader in identifying independent variables, um, provide a more realistic uh, recognition of what's going on? And my answer is um, it, it, it might be more realistic, but it doesn't have any predictive value. And the reason that it doesn't is, as I spell out in the book, it throws in the kitchen sink. It identifies, as your question almost itself suggested, everything is relevant, and we can't know what the causative factors are because it's all, well, policy ultimately is a function of the sturm and drang of negotiation and conflict among varying shifting groups and individuals and personalities with different status and different sponsors and different surrogates, et cetera. And um, th that, I, I suppose, is, is accurate at one level. But as I say, it, it just doesn't have any explanatory value. So I disagree that it either predicts or doesn't predict policy continuity. So far as I can see, it doesn't predict anything. Should we go down the line? Any last words, Jeremy? You um, yeah, um, I'm not sure where we disagree on that last point, but uh, I, I guess I find that um, the, the double government concept that's in the book is uh, at least, at the very least, supplementally helpful for understanding how uh, decision making is made. And I think it's a distinction, it's distinct from saying that the national security bureaucracy is just another interest group because um, the national security bureaucracy is within the government and as we sort of demonstrated has, is, is, has such an impact on the way that uh, the Madisonians uh, perceive their choices on the, uh, on the way that they receive information that it's not simply like, uh, no offense, the ACLU. Um, <laughs> it, has, it has a much greater grip on how they make decision making. And I, found, I find that this mode of analysis 
which I was actually struggling to sort of inchoately develop for myself to be very, very helpful in understanding that, um, that decision-making process. I guess I do feel that the other two models uh, have their place, um, and I do find them also to be uh, useful. Uh, in terms of the question of whether they ever predict anything, I, I guess the only point I was making is that, um, I, I mean, I do think that the, organ that the organizational politics <coughs> model at times predicts things, and I could go through examples, but uh, particularly in the CT area that we were talking, that is highlighted in the book, it's very clear to me that all of the models were pointing in the same direction. Um, and that meant that it's very, it's a, it's a difficult case to disaggregate uh, their effects and to put them up against each other. And I think that there, it's, I think you can find different cases where one has more explanatory power than the other and where one, and it would be, I think, very interesting to find ones in which they, in which you could, in which you could sort of say that they disagree and find out which one was more powerful. Gene, any coda to this discussion? No. Yeah. Well, those of you who know me well will know that what Herculean effort it took for me to resist the urge to work blue as moderator, as a couple of our uh, discussants did here. Um, let me urge you, if we have any copies left, to purchase a copy of National Security and Double Government, the book that has spurred so much useful discussion here this afternoon. And uh, before you join me in thanking our author and discussant, let me tell you that we will have lunch upstairs up the spiral staircase in the Jaeger Conference Center uh, to follow. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.